Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Steve Wood, back again with me, Bill Kanaski, for part three of our viewer listener mail. You know, Steve, something just, uh, and I, I sent you this last week. Everybody's complaining. You know, why, why is everything so expensive, right? And I got clients going, like, oh my God, that price of a mock trial is astronomical. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it is. But a lot of that we can't control. I mean, we have our professional fee, but then you have expenses. So, so I'm in California, right? And I, I, I sent you the receipt as, as, as proof oh, of this. Yes. I had, yes. I had my um, uh, fettuccine Alfredo with chicken, which is fantastic, by the way. And then I'm like, you know, hey, you know, it's been a long week here. I think I'm going to treat myself to some dessert. So I asked, I asked the the server i'm like what, what do you got yeah i got this brownie thing and this ice cream and then they had something it was like a lemon cake like right something like that i like, well, i really like lemon is that any good he's like yeah everybody likes it. I go, let me get, let me have a bring out the lemon cake i devoured this lemon cake it was a it wasn't a small piece but it wasn't a huge it was a medium regular size piece of cake everything was cool love it i get my bill Steve, I sent you the photograph of the uh, receipt. Yeah. Fourteen dollars. Let, let me let me say that again. For a, a piece of f and cake, fourteen dollars. I my jaw just hit the. <laughs> I asked the server. I'm like, you know what? what, what well, you know what I said. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What else do I? What else do I get with this fourteen dollars? Fourteen dollars. He just kind of looked at me. He's like, "Yeah, that's our price." I'm like, fourteen dollars. Like I went on my chicken wing rant, right? Yeah, yeah. But see, fourteen for cake. How was how was that? I hope it was good. I hope it was, it was worth. It was good, but I have to submit that. I have to submit that receipt to my client. And they're like, what the hell are you getting? Fourteen dollar cake? You know they should have. Remember in Pulp Fiction, five dollar shake. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. John Travolta is like five dollar shake. You know, <laughs> does it have rum in it? Right. I mean, <laughs> that's that's his response. They should have named it the fourteen dollar piece of cake. Now let's do some math, right? So you're the Hilton, okay? You're you're, you're running the restaurant, at the Hilton. How many, how many pieces of cake do you think are in the, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to bet it's probably eight, right? Probably. Eight. That's probably a Let's good say bet. Eight. Yeah. eight, eight times 14. Wow. They're making some cake profit. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that right now. We, we need to get, we're like I said, as we've come to the conclusion multiple times now on this podcast, you and I are in the wrong business. Apparently we are in the wrong 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 business i'm going over my other rants here oh yes okay so i'm on there <laughs> this is classic so i'm on the airplane you gotta love this and uh yes i happen to be in first class and she the flight attendant comes up to me um so we had just taken off right everything stabilizes and they come around and they're gonna take um as the morning you know early flight and take drink orders and she goes, sir, what, what would you like to, to drink with breakfast? And I said, this is exactly what I said, Steve. I said, um, I'd like um, some coffee, black, with um, a little bit of water as well. I shit you not. Her response was, do you want that, do you want that water on the side or do you want it in the coffee? Yikes. 
Steve. Steve. <laughs> I, so I again, I another kind of what? So I looked. I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. That did, did you just say that? She's like, well, you know, you never. I thought maybe you wanted it in the coffee. I wasn't sure whether you wanted the water in the coffee or you wanted like a separate glass of water. Then she came, she came, she came back. Of course I picked the, I teased her. <laughs> like I said, no, no, no. I want my, I want the water in the coffee <laughs> just to mess with her. And she laughed, but she really, she's like, no, I, I just want to make sure I understood you. I'm like, okay. All right. Well, so Steve, the next time you travel, if you are going to have coffee with breakfast on the airplane and you also want a little, you know, water just to kind of, you know, cleanse the palate, you just may want to be clear that you want those two things separated. Right. Got it. But yeah, but yeah, if you're the type of guy that wants water mixed in with the coffee, I mean, by the way, when I go to a law firm and I'm drinking coffee in the morning for witness prep, what's the worst thing in the world? Watered down coffee. It's the worst, right? Yeah. Oh, God. Don't, don't get me started. Don't get <laughs> me started. Um, okay, back to, back to viewer and listener mail. We, get, we still got plenty of good stuff here. Um, okay, guys, what are your Vordeer recommendations for federal court when maybe, maybe you have 30 to 60 minutes to ask questions to jurors? Oh, man, this is, this is rough. This is really rough. My recommendation is identification because you know you always talk about identification yeah. versus indoctrination. Yeah. And I forego, or at least for the most part, forego any sort of indoctrination and go right for identification. And you just got to be surgical of sorts with the questions that you're asking to identify essentially those jurors that you want to strike rather than goofing yeah, around yeah. about talking about burden of proof and is anybody yeah. think because we're here yeah. we must have done something wrong and blah 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 all that yeah. stuff i think i think a, a general strategy to use uh when you're time limited like that is you gotta you gotta you gotta answer questions um where people raise their hands and get many answers at once yeah and work through those like you know if you have a veneer of 35 you can't okay well let's start with your number one and work well no you're gonna you're gonna blow all your time i think you have to ask a question you know, who agrees with this, raise your hand. And then the people that raise their hand or don't raise their hand, you go through them and question them one-on-one -on -one and you better do it quick. Um, can you also talk about the impact of how a supplemental juror questionnaire can help uh, alleviate some of the pain in this very process? Yeah, that, that's actually another good, good option to use to cut down time. And you can use it as, you know, part of the, the argument to the court is that you're using it as a way to keep court efficient and be able to ask those questions. So I think that's another way for you to, to ask and get feedback that you don't, wouldn't have to ask in an open court. And going back to what we talked about on the last podcast about social desirability bias, you know, when you're doing it on a supplement or juror questionnaire, you're tending to get more, more than likely you're going to get more accurate responses, at least on that, because it's more private and they don't have to worry about talking about certain topics that might be sensitive. They don't have to worry about talking about them in open court. I think it's yeah. another way too to address those sensitive questions without having to ask everybody. But yeah. I think it goes back. Another thing that you that you said, I think I like that not enough attorneys do is do that whole who agrees with juror number seven and get yes. people to kind of raise their hands. They don't do that. They're like, thanks, juror number seven, yeah. for that. That's the follow-up. <laughs> yeah. So what so what you want to do if here's what you want to do. You want to get a juror to agree 
with something really, really bad right. towards your case. And then you thank them immensely that they raised their hand. And then you say, well, why is that? Get their rationale for. And then the next question is, who here agrees with your number five? And if one other person raised their hand, boom, there's your second strike. I yeah. mean, it's the follow up of you take the burden off of other people, but you have to be efficient. And, and plaintiff's counsel is in the same boat. See, that's the thing of federal court. Boy, you, you do that wrong. You get outmaneuvered in federal court jury selection. You're screwed. Yeah. I mean, you're screwed. So, yeah hand raising questions and then get a couple. And then the moment you hear something bad, Hey, you thank that juror for saying something so bad. Cause they're going to be gone. Who else agrees with juror number five, please raise your hand and maybe get two of them. But I think that's a pretty good philosophy there because time is not on your side. Okay. Uh, what is the best way to question my client at trial during uh, director rehabilitation examination. You know, I, I have very strong feelings uh, on this because I'm a big, big, uh, you know, the, the big believer of primacy um, scientifically. I mean, just so uh, important and proven. And when you get your client on the stand and, and you blow, I mean, just blow that first 10 minutes on background, education, what's your favorite color? That that's the golden opportunity. You think the jurors want to really hear that shit? No, no, no. The the first three or four questions should be about about liability. You know, did you? Yeah, if it's a if it's a med mal case, the first question: Did you deviate from the standard of care in this case, doctor? And it should be an emphatic: No, I did not. Look at the jury. You tell that jury right now. Why did you? Why was your care reasonable? inappropriate in this case go ahead tell them that's what comes out of your mouth first right not where did you go to med school and by the way why do you why do you want to be why did you want to be a doctor was this when you were a teenager is that when you wanted to be a doctor do you like to help people no f no you're wasting time and a lot of times in these cases your client's been called as an adverse witness they just got pummeled for the last hour and 15 minutes and then you get up as defense counsel. You you better get on your horse and get going. You do that background stuff in the middle someplace. But I mean, Steve, I mean, you agree with me that you, you got to come out firing. You can't be waiting on what the jury's dying to hear, right? Yeah, I think to your point, yes, you got to come out quick. And I think that's the thing we you and I always preach all the time is nobody comes right out of the shoot firing right off the bat. It's it's taking the time and you know warming them up but i will say though because i know you know that now that i haven't seen any of these viewer questions i'm going to ask you a question right here and put you on the spot because i know somebody's going to end up asking us but bill don't i need to spend time don't, don't i need to humanize my witness don't i need to find a way for my witness to engage and come across as credible with the jurors and if i don't do that background stuff at the front end I'm going to miss my opportunity or they're not going to like my client or, or feel like my client is credible until later. No, hell no. <laughs> Cause a, a, they've been determined to be credible or not well before they've gotten on the stand, which I want you to talk about in a second through their body language, their facial expression, their general courtroom behavior is a huge factor in credit credibility and humanization. Okay. Secondly, all that stuff, all that mushy stuff you want to talk about, okay, 
put that in the middle of your questioning. You take a you take a break from the case. You know, let's let's take a step back, doc or whoever you're, or if it's the CEO, whoever. Then yeah, you, know, you do that kind of touchy feely type of question in the middle. But when they've been pummeled on the stand for the last hour and a half before you get up, and now it's your chance to rehab this witness. You better not start off mushy or you're going to be in trouble. Steve, talk a little bit about the impact of nonverbal communication and how it relates to credibility well before your client uh, even gets on the stand. Yeah, I think that's one of the other, you know, that people don't spend enough time talking about. It's the nonverbal, you know, as we've always said, it's, it's not it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And I think that's so important about when witnesses are testifying, especially in open court, that, you know, I always like to talk about being consistent across your testimony, both in, you know, cross and direct cross or redirect and making sure that you don't do anything. You don't say anything with some sort of snark or tone in your voice. That's going to cause jurors to go, "Uh Oh, something's going on here. Something's interesting is happening. And now all of a sudden they, you know, you, you've, called into question your credibility or you you made yourself look bad you know and i yeah. think the other thing as far as not even just you know tone and inflection in your voice but also the eye contact that you're making with jurors how your body is is sitting are you swiveling in the chair are yeah. you looking at the jurors constantly uh like they did in the you know the johnny depp case where amber heard was like always always looking at the jury <laughs> on every single answer which just was freaking people out you know there's <laughs> a, there's out. a yeah, there's a there's kind of a, an art to doing it to help build your credibility. Yeah. And I think instinctually, most people don't understand how to do it. And they get up there and fidget and fumble, <laughs> do a lot of other things, like you said, because yeah. jurors are constantly always looking for tells, looking for things to get additional pieces of information out of your witness. And it's not just like I said, how they're answering it, but there's a lot of other aspects that they're looking at. Most of the time, witnesses don't pay attention to that. And before you know it, some juror doesn't find them to be credible because they were looking up to the left or looking up to the right. When we know all that stuff doesn't really mean anything, doesn't matter whether it does or it doesn't, jurors think that yeah. it does. And jurors think because you did it, somehow yeah. you're being untruthful. So I think there's a lot of things from the nonverbal yeah. behaviors that people don't understand. Yeah. And also on, on adverse examination, a witness can come across as a really good human being if they're trained appropriately. And they know yeah. how to play the chess. I mean, that's what we train them to do. They can be very, very likable, right? Or, or they could be taught to pivot. Here we go. See? Oh God! Here we Not go. Yeah, rant. but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but right. Yeah. And then they come across like a clown on the stand, where they can embrace. Listen, there's two ways to deal with conduct during cross examination. You defend your conduct or you embrace your conduct. What do you think the jurors want? Well, jurors don't like defensive people. Every time you're with, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Every but that comes out of their mouth, you're going to hear this in the background. Cha-ching, cha-ching. And that's just the verdict going up. Cha-ching, cha-ching. You know, did, isn't it true you did X? The witness looks right at the jury and says, absolutely, I did. They own it, own it, believe in it, and the jury will believe in you. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but stop blaming the refs, right? No, I think that's a, <laughs> before we move on, I think that's a perfect, yeah. uh, I think that's a perfect thing for you to say is that there are ways on cross-exam to come across as credible. You don't have to wait yeah. for, for redirect to come no. across as credible. 
No, I think the die has been cast. Yeah, well, well before then. All right, next question. Um, are, this, is, this is great. This is a great question. Um, are engineers bad jurors for the defense? I know you have some, I know you have some uh, opinions on this one because there's quite a few engineers out there, at least people with engineering training uh, and they get on juries. What are your thoughts on this one? Because I think there's this assumption that way, well, if they're analytical and they're very logical and they're math driven, like that's a defense juror. Uh, as Lee Corso says, not so fast, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, yeah, no, I think they can be, I mean, just because they're engineers, you yeah. know, that they, they, that, I mean, they are analytical, they are methodical in their thought process. The problem yeah. becomes though, they're human beings. And at the end of the day, they may be highly emotional, hyper emotional yeah. individuals. Yeah. So now you they have somebody, methodically, yeah, methodically so you hit have, you with the nuclear verdict, right? Methodically. Yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. They, and they get, they get in there and the thing, what makes them dangerous, right? Is they are analytical. They have, they are very thorough. So they can, you know, they can articulate the arguments yeah. to their other jurors and yeah. they may end up being the four person. And now you have this highly yeah. emotional, very articulate, very thoughtful, <laughs> very analytical person yeah. who is, like you said, going to walk down the, the list and just <laughs> bang, bang, bang on, on the defense. So, yeah. And no. so, and so I had to say, so I did a mock trial about a month ago up in Pennsylvania and one of the jurors un unknown to us, because on their juror pro, they, they weren't an engineer. They were doing something else. But they had I think they started off in engineering and then switched majors in college, right? So they had enough engineering background to be, um, to be dangerous. It was a product liability case for a piece of machinery. And during the deliberations, this guy was the four person. And we just sat back and said, yeah, I've taken four engineering classes. Boy, they really botched the design of this project. I was oh, like, God. oh, God. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, absolutely killed us. Right. And you would think, well, Hey, you know, many of our witnesses are engineers, right? Well, if you have an engineer juror, well, hell they're going to decide, uh, no, they could be your, it's kind of like a nurse or a doctor in a medical case, right? Yeah. If they're on your, it cuts both ways. It's super, super dangerous. Like anything else, they're thinking they need to be evaluated uh, very, very carefully. I think if you had a product liability case, with a piece of equipment, uh, an engineer could make it. It's really, really risky. Yep, absolutely. Uh, what a great question. Um, oh, you'll like this one, Steve. Uh, what types of demonstrative exhibits work best with jurors? Should I always go high tech? This, this question comes up a lot. I would a say lot. no. High tech isn't always, because I think it goes, I mean, we, we yeah. talked about this before. Yeah. Length does not imply strength. I don't, it, or, or, or you don't have to do these. Th I mean, so many times people are like, I and want this to be very complex. I want this to have all these bells and whistles. And, you know, the problem is sometimes yeah. simple is better. Sometimes concise. Simplicity, is simplicity. Yeah. And by the way, Steve, when things get high tech and complex, you know, I, you know, my just hatred towards complexity. Yeah. Um, you're increasing the statistical odds that something's going to go wrong with your technology. I don't know if you've seen that in a courtroom before. It's not pretty. I was working on a federal case in Cleveland. Okay. I can't tell you what case is that it was a $7 billion case. Okay. Commercial litigation. And the, the plaintiff team went to, to start their, their opening, right. They couldn't, they couldn't get their system to work. Mm. 
So the guy abandons ship and gives this opening with no slides, no nothing, no nothing. Um, it didn't work out so well. Nah, when when figure, but I think the other, I think uh, partly the reason why maybe why people like to do this high tech, they think people want it. The other reason why is I think for some people, it actually takes time to simplify things. I mean, I've yeah. sat before with with engineers and I've had them try to explain things to me, and I go, "Don't get it. Explain yeah. <laughs> it again." And then they do it, and I yeah. said, "Still don't get it. Explain don't it get again." It. Yeah. And and I make them go over and over and over again until it's the most precise, concise, yeah. and simplified explanation because you know what? All your jurors aren't going to be engineers and all of them might not be able to follow the high tech yeah. aspects of it. If you can simplify it, then you can make a very persuasive argument, very simple. Everybody yeah, yeah. gets it. And like I said, it, but the problem is it's, it's hard to do because people don't want to make yeah, it simple yeah. because it takes refining and that's okay. what you got to do though. And, and this is scary. I think you're going to agree with me. This is terrifying, but I think it's true simplicity will beat accuracy every time it it will yeah. jurors believe the simple solution and for you know you can you can be really really complicated and accurate and you're going to lose the jury right you could be simple and half accurate and they'll believe everything you say it's it's kind of yeah. scary yeah, because it's easy for them to integrate into their yeah. thought process, right? And it's easy for them to articulate rather than go back, like you said, into the yeah. deliberation in room hat and spend 45 minutes talking about the the animation that they just saw that they don't even understand. Um, okay, next next question. Oh, this is I hate this question. I hate this question because I get it. I get it. I get it after every speech, and I know you do too. Um I really want to hire you guys, but the insurance company is hesitant to approve the expense. What do I tell them? <laughs> your, your adversary is spending money right now preparing to beat you. And we're having, we're having this discussion. Now, if you have a case, okay, let, let me, I'll try to be nice. Now, if you have a case, maybe the damages aren't too high. It's a real simple, straightforward case. Well, yeah, yeah maybe you don't need us, right? I mean, I, I get that. Yeah, you know, yeah, a case with a 10, 20, 30 million dollar demand. Throw in a co-defendant. Now you're talking about a portion of the fault. You're not spending some money to get some jury level answers. I mean, you could you, you that could have nuclear verdict written all over it, right? Yeah, I think it goes back to though, you know, you get it. I know you get the question, and I get why. I mean. I sort of get it and don't get why they don't they, they don't spend the money. But I think it goes back to something that you've said, and I'll let you speak to it because you can speak to it, uh, you know, probably better than I can. But the whole idea when you're talking about how there's that disconnect on the insurance side when they're the ones cutting the yeah. check, and then on the the attorney side when they win the verdict, right? It, they don't get the they don't get to hold the trophy as you would like to say. They don't get to hold the trophy, and I, I think. I think many in the insurance industry, I think part of, I think it's unfair to them. I think many insurance claims people, um, there's a lot of pressure to save money. Right. Right. Um, and if they lose, it's really not their, their money. Right. It's some other departments, <laughs> pay, you know, pay, paying it out. But you know, what I see with uh, one of the common threads in these nuclear verdicts, um, which we talk about in our, in our talks and we talked about in the podcast is the, the difference in weaponry between the sides. And uh, if it's not a fair fight, your, your odds of 
of winning are, I, I think are pretty, are pretty diminished. And so um, I think they need to see it as an investment, right? They need to see it as an investment uh, into winning and not see it as an expense. Is everything, yeah. if everything's just an expense, well then, and you just go cheap with everything. I mean, think about that. I mean, um, I, and again, I'm not afraid to say this because I didn't come up with this. I'm just repeating what everybody's told me is if you have a corporation or an insurance company and they're going to go get attorneys on their panel that are discounted half price attorneys and not go after the better defense counsel. I mean, what do you expect when it comes to outcome? Yeah. Right. I mean, there's differences on attorneys and I, I, for the, I'm not saying this happens every time, but I think for the most part, um, oftentimes you get what you pay for. And if you're going to, you know, cut back on that, I think it's, um, you know, every, I, I tell you this though, to kind of put a positive spin on this, um, we have developed some really, really good relationships as of late with insurance companies that have had enough. Yeah. And they want to fight. They're, they're tired. They're sick and tired of getting out maneuvered. They're sick and tired of losing. And, and, and no, and, and you want to know who, what's been the C level executives at the company have called the claims department, right. And, and said, enough is enough. Spend the money, damn it. Go out and, and win. I mean, and so we're seeing a lot of change there with some pretty aggressive insurance companies that said, yeah, we're going to spend this money. Um, and the other good thing is we're going to spend it early. We're not doing this on the eve of trial when discovery's closed and we don't have, you know, no, they're doing a lot of, uh, I just got off a call, um, a two day focus group um, down here in Florida. Uh, there's no trial date yet, but they know this case has potential high damage. I want answers now because I can do something about it. Experts still haven't even been deposed. Well, if you, if you know how jury, a jury feels right about your case and discovery still open, you have a lot of power. Yeah, there's nothing worse than, yeah. you know, when you and I spend, you know, a large period of time writing these analysis reports and I come yeah. up with all these ideas for, we can create this type of demonstrative, we can do this, we can do that. And then the attorney goes, that's great, discovery's closed. <laughs> and it's like, all right, yeah. never mind. I guess we can't do that. Um, so like you said, you, you, you hinder yourself from any sort of additional weaponry to be able to do that. Yeah. So I think, again, I think, uh, I know I was a little harsh earlier and I get blame for bad in the defense of the claim specialist size right you know there's a lot of them out there who want to spend the money that just can't I, right and 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 they can't but i do th i do think they need to evaluate it on a case-by-case -case basis um but i think there's just some obvious circumstances in which if you don't spend money to defend the case and get some real answer and get giving your trial team weaponry to use um i think you're putting your trial team in a really bad position uh dear guys uh <laughs> If my, I love this. If my witness has an emotional meltdown during the deposition, what can I do to get them back on track? I think Steve, you know, the answer to this. Take a break. <laughs> That's the first thing. <laughs> uh, um, well, yeah, go yeah, good, good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> I would say what? this. If you see that, if you see your witnesses temperature and blood pressure starting to elevate you better take a break and yank him out of the room before there's the meltdown. I think this Correct. is saying, see, I think the question is post meltdown, what can you do? You're screwed. I would argue is... <laughs> you better cancel the dep if anything. Cause yeah, 
once that amygdala hijack takes over and these witnesses have adrenaline and cortisol going through their blood through their veins i mean that's a three to six hour neurochemical <laughs> effect i mean you're not yeah. just going to calm them down right no i think that's to, to your other point too is you know you can't just say let's let's take a break and then go yeah. go into the room for five minutes and say all right let's take a five minute break let's cool down and then go back and you know your, your witness might tell you that they're feeling okay and that they're ready to go back in but as you said from a physiological standpoint they're they're not you know and, and if i'm opposing counsel and that happens i'm going back at them again right because as I always like to talk about, it's like road rage as far as how it would be as if someone cut you off and, and you had road rage and then, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're amped up and then imagine it happens again and imagine it happens again and imagine it happens again in succession. That's what I would be doing too, is once I know that you're having these, these emotional meltdowns, you're not getting off the hook um, because now I'm just going to keep the pedal to the metal. And now I'm going to continue yeah. causing you these emotional meltdowns because I know essentially that you're not going to have enough time to recover because that recovery period is so long. It's so long. And that brain's going to maintain fight or flight for hours yeah. and hours. I mean, Steve, let's go to the baseball analogy, right? When, when the pitcher, the pitcher in the game has an emotional meltdown and that coach walks out to the mound, you know, as well as I do giving that break, that little conference is not about calming the pitcher down. It's over. That conference is about getting, the bullpen warmed up, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's it's no... not about, you think you yeah. can go is yeah. Take a deep breath. You think you can go another three, four, four hitters. No. no, to your point, it's, it's, it's already past the point. I think that's the other yeah. thing too, about the witnesses having these emotional meltdowns is to your, th your point is if you see it happening before it's about to happen, you better take a break. I think the fact of the matter is though, is, and we and I preach on this all the time and written papers on it about, never letting it get there in the first place by identifying those emotional hot buttons of your witnesses so that you know what those are before you go into the deposition. Because how many yeah. times have we heard horror stories where there's things that come up or topics that get touched on that the witness isn't prepared for, or that even the attorney didn't even know it was an issue or didn't think it was going to be an issue with that witness. Then they find out after the fact, I think it goes to a prep on the front end too have an understanding of your witness their hot button issues so that you don't even have to worry about it in the deposition because it's not going to happen because you've prepared for it no very very good point all right next question Th this is a very tricky one but you and i deal with this all the time um how should i test evidence in a mock trial format if i'm not sure if the judge is going to let it in or not hmm put it in hmm. <laughs> put it in in yeah. worst form and yeah <laughs> And if you need to do as, as we like test, to retest. do, test, yeah. retest, exactly. Try it with it in, try it with it out. But I think what you need to do is, uh, you know, is you need to for sure assume that it's coming in and test yeah. it that way versus the other way. And like I said, the worst case, you do a test, retest, or if you only have one crack at it and you're, you know, then you're only going to be able to do it once. You got to do it with it in and, and get the reaction yeah. of the jurors. Well, we have this case out west that yeah. you're working on <laughs> where there's a there's a disagreement right between yeah. the legal team and the client on how to do things because they're not sure what's going to happen but i right. guess it's you know assume the worst um and then if it works out in your benefit okay you can make some adjustments but if it works out against you then you've tested the worst right exactly yep and yeah. I, that was that's a good way to take it okay next question how do I, how do I deal with 
a defendant who is experiencing extreme guilt and wants to admit fault, even though they didn't do anything wrong and it was an honest accident. Hey, these, that's, that's, that's a tough place to be. That's going to be like you said, I mean, that's going to be once in your, and then once again, going back to training and prepping the witnesses for deposition and, and getting and having yeah. a conversation with them and identifying how, despite the fact that they may feel guilt and all that type of stuff to, you know, alleviate of those, them of those concerns prior to deposition. So that when they get de- into deposition, they feel more confident and comfortable with their conduct um, and not feeling like they're going to fall on the sword. And then also having an understanding that, you know, by doing that, yeah, that's, that's great. You alleviate some of that burden. The problem is now you've essentially changed the tenor and the, the whole thing of the case yeah. because you go into the deposition and, and fall on the sword for something that you didn't need to. While I can appreciate it and understand where somebody's coming from, the truth of the matter is it's not necessary, and it, especially not in the deposition, for you to do that. Um, and I think, like I said, just going back to understanding and educating that witness about what it means for the case, but also <clears throat> spending time with them to get them to understand that it's not actually as bad as it sounds or they're, they're not as at fault as what they believe they should or are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, th- that's another good thing to cover right now. The difference between uh, could have, should have, and would have. This is a big part, a very important part of our witness training system. And, and that needs to be broken down because, because witnesses don't really understand this. And it's really, really important because these questions are very, very, very different questions, right? Yeah. Could have merely means possibilities. Okay. Steve, you could have gotten the breakfast tacos, but instead, you know, you got the breakfast burrito. You know, yeah, I I could have gotten the breakfast, right? It's it's a possibility, right? And with defendants, there's always going to be a, well, you could have done these other things, right? And, And yeah. Yeah, could have. Yeah. In the most cases, that's it's it's generally a possibility. Doesn't hurt you. It sounds terrible. Sounds terrible, but doesn't hurt you. So um, the could haves, that's where a lot of people get worried. No, no, no. It's just it's a possibility. Okay. Yeah. You can you can agree to most could haves because just that doesn't mean you should have, right? Now, should have implies you you blew it. You made right. the wrong decision. You made the wrong decision. You made a mistake should have so if the phrase should have comes out uh, that's going to be a no <laughs> you say yes to a should have that's typically a, uh, an admission of liability in many cases right and then would have that's really speculation right that's crystal ball stuff that's going back and you know marty mcfly going back in the delorean well if you would have gone back four years and you know, did X instead of Y, then that would have prevented this whole, well, I don't know. (laughs) That's impossible to know. And I think a lot of witnesses get caught up in those differences. And so that's part of our training system is to train their brain, how to differentiate between those uh, questions because they they are really different, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and the implications are much different and all the underlying tenets of it are all different as well. Absolutely. Okay. Are you ready for one? You do one more, right? I got one more on me. Yeah. Okay. This, um, okay. I like this. I have several more here, but I'm going to pick out one. Um, I'm going to give this to you as a jury consultant. Does a juror's health status matter to you? 
Hmm. Now we have a lot of people out there, Steve, in the general population that, you know, suffer from chronic illnesses, you know, right? You have COPD, you have diabetes, you have people, you know, that are obese and don't take care of themselves. You have, yeah, you, know, you have all kinds of kind of health issues that they're not bad enough to keep them out of a courtroom as a juror, right? Yeah. Um, and what do those mean to you as a, a jury consultant when it comes to, to, to jury selection? But what it tends to mean is, is a lot of times we see it as it ends up being a little bit more of skewed towards pro plaintiff type yeah. personalities. Um, they're the type of people who kind of always have these significant life events, always have something going on with them, always the type of person who essentially always has a problem. When you're asking them, you know, hey, Bill, how you doing today? Rather than saying, man, I'm good. It's all of a sudden wow, my back hurts. And I swear <laughs> I went to the doctor and the doctor doesn't tell me anything. You know, he's not telling me anything. I'm always constantly in pain. The guy doesn't know what he's talking yeah. about. The guy's a chronic queen. pain. That's another one. Yeah. Fibromyalgia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Those are generally bad for the defense. They are. Yeah. Um, and then they also tend to, uh, in some cases, particularly in personal injury, tend to have sympathy for someone else that's been injured because yeah. you know and, and i mean i mean how many cases are you part of steve where part of the damages is is pain and suffering right yeah um and so yeah i i do think health status and in, in, in many cases now i do think also there's a difference if you, and sometimes you don't know this, sometimes you do whether it's more of a behavioral issues right causing right a a health condition right. versus something the person has no control over, you know, somebody has type one diabetes. Well, you're, you're born with that type two diabetes is a behavioral based disease, right? I mean, there's stuff like that. So um, yeah, I, I, I tend to want jurors that kind of care about themselves. I like, I like jurors that eat right and exercise. And I think that's, Part of the discussion you have with them during voir dire, assuming it's not federal court, we we talked about that. Uh, but if you have time to get to know what are your high, yeah, do you exercise? Yeah, how, how would how would you rate your own health? Yeah, we have questions like that on our questionnaires, but yeah. you can ask those questions. You know, and I think people that tend to be healthy, they like they're into, um, you know, whether it be fitness or diet or yoga or meditation or whatever, and they 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 value their own health. I think that's a positive it's i don't think it's a predictor of outcome but i do think it's um people that don't take care of themselves um give me because because I, I think that's an indicator of poor judgment too right yeah i mean I, and i think one of the other things i was thinking about though to add kind of on to this and i'd be curious on what your thoughts are as yeah. far as we'll probably hear some people say like well i've heard people say well i i've been injured or i've been sick or i've had bad outcomes and i haven't got a big large settlement. So why should this person get yeah. a large amount of money? So then now all of a sudden you have the flip side of the person who's having these health issues or has these chronic problems, essentially being more pro-defense. I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I mean, does it go back to really more or less just having to identify and ask more questions and get uh, more yeah. information? More questions, more information. Um, and that, but the, you know, it does show, and I'm glad that we talked to kind of that difference between state court and federal court. I mean, try, I mean, Steve, trial, trial is risky. You could have the best case. You've mocked tried it five times. All your witnesses are ready. And you, you get a bad panel that day. And, you know, yeah. 
you can only do so much. So there is a level of, uh, of risk there, but I think you do have control by being able to do your jury research, come up with a pro plaintiff or a high damages juror profile, right? But the one thing we can't control and the one thing the clients can't control, hell, the one thing the plaintiff attorneys can't control, they can't, sh- they can't control who's showing up that day. Yeah. And, and I think that's, yeah. What are you going to do? I think do, that's right? the other thing too, is you think you, you know, you do all that and then you can just wave a magic wand and make the perfect panel show up. Right. And I think it goes for both ways, whether plaintiff attorney doesn't get the yeah. perfect panel or defense attorney doesn't get the perfect panel. It just ends up being, like you said, a crap shoot of who's going to be there on that day. Yeah. Well, Steve, I enjoyed the, uh, viewer uh listener mail will certainly uh, do this again i would like to thank our audience we're getting a lot of really good uh feedback uh, on the podcast and i know you are as well yeah um yeah. it's something that's really important to us uh well we enjoy it number one um we like to talk about uh all these um issues um we uh we think it's a great way to share information uh i don't care if plaintiff attorneys or whatever listen to this they have their podcast you can go listen by the way that there's plenty of plain but have to our audience if you want to go listen to plaintiff podcasts there i can rattle off a dozen of them right now i listen to them it's pretty neat stuff i think it's interesting because i do think you gotta give credit where credit is due i'm not bashing yeah. plaintiff attorneys because hey they've done a great great job i tell you what those folks really know how to communicate information well they help each other uh, we're trying to see more of that uh, more collaboration on the defense side of things. So I think we could take uh, a page from their playbook is to communicate better. I think this is one of the, you know, one of the ways that we're trying to, uh, to do that. Um, you know, we're also having a lot of uh, recent podcasts on attorney growth and development, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, going from that associate to the partner level and partner to senior partner and types of things that you need to do, mentoring other attorney. You know, there's a lot of good stuff I think we have on this um on the show and it kind of never gets old and boy we're on what episode like 140 141 up there hey we're approaching 150 do do we do something for 150 special i think we may have to because that that's probably going to come out what at the right in the new year right yeah it's probably shortly after yeah we'll have to we'll have to put our heads together and figure out something yeah yeah i think we need to put our heads together for 150 to do something uh special for the audience but uh i thought this maybe you can maybe you can use that maybe you can use some of your listener viewer uh mail that you're getting to find out topics that we haven't covered that that we should be covering yeah yeah i can and i'll do that as i'm giving speeches and you're giving speeches i will i will i will ask and we'll get more topics and we'll get more of that yeah and if, if you want to be a guest contact us we're pretty easy to find courtroomsciences.com uh we'd love to have you on uh as a guest and uh, this has been a great episode steve uh take it away close it out yes it has been hopefully like i said we'll come back for another viewer mail you know, part four, but until then, this has been another edition of the litigation psychology podcast brought to you by courtroom sciences.